Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. Previously on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, I'd left China for the winter break, then returned and gone straight into the countryside, killed a goose by accident, and froze through the Chinese Lantern Festival. Well, rural life can be harsh, but let's not forget the strides that China's taken since the communist victory in 1949, and especially the opening up period ushered in by Deng Xiaoping. Compared to the situation before, life for many is increasingly comfortable. But then comes another problem. And it's something that many of us in the rest of the world can relate to: the monotony of the white-collar working life, the impact that the daily grind has on your soul, all that time and money and energy spent on just about standing still. On the next episode, we're going to talk to Andrea, an office worker in Shanghai who's appeared on this pod a couple of times. She's going to explain the cultural malaise that has come to define life for these young workers in China, and the jargon that's cropped up to describe it. Of course, as a Laowai teacher living inside the cradle of elite school here in Changshu, I could barely understand the life of the Chinese workers. Okay, I could see the way the Chinese teachers were pressurized, but beyond that, in the offices in the business districts that now dot the country, no idea. For me, after one semester at the school, despite all the ups and downs so far, I could totally understand how, for some Laowai, it's a life they never give up. They settle down for good. Even here, in this countryside city which doesn't even have a train station, I could see how someone could get comfortable living in the school as a slightly bloated child, all needs cared for, a stable paycheck, and zero chance of getting fired, unless you start throwing classroom equipment at your students like Eddie did. A year's jaunt could easily become two, then five, and before you know it, you've got a career and possibly even a family. Cities like Changshu have a fairly small expat community. And you'd become a staple member of it, a regular at the Brew Kettle, which renamed itself as Brooklyn Bar around this time, but it's pretty much the same. You'd excel at Chinese. You'd play Chinese card games in Chinese, and you'd swear in Chinese when you lost, before fighting with your acquaintance over who should pay the bill. You'd become Yoda to the coming generations of teachers, and enjoy seeing them screw up with their naivety in the way you used to. You'd find charm in what was previously frustrating. The men who walk in the gutter, obstructing the traffic, the old women at the market who add five yuan to the price of your dragon fruit, because you're a Laowai. You could thrive, but there would be gaps, moments when you sink into culture shock instead of gliding on its surface, moments when you begin to feel the outsider status you will always have, that you can't escape, that status that makes you too special. Too valuable to the school to treat as badly as everybody else, but never an insider, never fully or even partially aware of what's really going on. The life is one of ignorance, like a tourist who only sees the sights that everyone sees. I mean, you'll get closer for sure, but you'll never quite get there, not in China. And if you live in a school where the shrieks of the kids being put to bed can be heard across the running track in your apartment, 
where the guards man the entrances and who comes and goes is recorded. We are treated so carefully that you begin to wonder if you're made of some kind of delicate material. And your doubts about work and your plans for the future are, so you come to think, recorded in a dossier and shared with the management as they strategize how to keep this foreigner from leaving his job. Where the sheer existence of the Lao Wai on the premises is 85% of the reason why these well-off families are coughing up to send these kids here. Well, you might end up letting the paranoia get the better of you. Before my first teaching job in Taiwan, the teacher trainer had warned us about culture shock, implanting the idea that any paranoia you feel about your working life is a trick of the mind. There's no spies here. You're just paranoid. Just because you're paranoid, Adam, I told myself as I swept the room for bugs, doesn't mean, what's this? I'm just a harmless battery. The hunt went on. I've been away in the UK and in the freezing Jiangsu countryside, and this is how I was settling into my suite above the running track once more. After half a year in which the management had been shouted down and outgunned by difficult foreigners, I was sure that they'd want to get the upper hand. Knowledge is power, after all. I checked behind the paintings, investigated the phone, I unzipped the shoddy old sofa and prodded about. But there was nothing my amateur eyes could reliably conclude hinted at audio or visual surveillance. I unpacked, sat on the edge of the bed, peered into the Ma Chongshu night with its dim streetlights lighting the roads to nowhere, and checked my phone. Welcome back, the message read. We this year expect a wonderful time for our school to work together, Jane. Was I safe? Or would they offer Jess an endless supply of sugary snacks to inform on me? Jess would definitely take that deal. This is my town, said Dodie. That's what I told him. I know the head of police, the immigration back office, and the brother of the local party chief. He knows my wife. I've been there for dinner. It's my town, and if you fuck with me, you're fucking with my town. And I don't lose. I win. We were in the playing field, surrounded by kids doing hopscotch and pretending to be dinosaurs. The beginning of term was marked by an extended assembly with a rousing speech from the principal, which no one listened to. Instead of running back to class, we were granted with a reunion. Dodie took the opportunity to engage Jane, the boss of the international department, in an expletive-ridden tirade about some unknown enemy somewhere else. She smiled and chuckled, either impressed with the tale or concerned about the swearing. It was hard to say, but I was perhaps starting to understand where Peter in class one was getting his more colourful language from. Before lunch, there was time for one class. This may be your town, Dodie. I thought as I pulled open the drawer and selected a piece of chalk. But this is my class. We whisked through 40 minutes of English catch-up with the kids before relocating for lunch, which was a damp, flattened jungle of varying shades of green, a hacked bone of pink paddling in an oily clear soup, rice and mm, oven-cooked breaded chicken. In the din of a busy canteen, the foreign teachers reunited, a peace treaty signed without the need to say it out loud to let the past stay in the past, to renew our friendships with one another on the basis of mutual interest, or, if nothing else, to avoid talking about controversial subjects such as 1. Islam 2. Ping-pong 3. The role of Ralph in the International Department Office 4. The pros and cons of injections of capital from central banks into the national economy 5. Spaghetti but eventually the topic of tactical gameplay against the establishment was broached. 
Dodie was preparing us, namely Arizona man Jess and myself at this point, for the afternoon meeting. I've been talking to them, he said, voice lowered, rice untouched. The management were on edge, he confided, and they're going to play smart, cards close to the chest. But we shouldn't be fooled. All this talk of playing cards made me sigh. Having been exhausted by paranoia and tension with the management during the previous semester, what with the saga of being sick, struggling with her hours and responsibilities, being propositioned by so-called versatile women whose aims were unclear, I really just wanted to get on with the job and not worry about the office politics. Jess felt similar and interjected to say how much she was looking forward to finger painting tomorrow. But Dodie smiled and shook his head in wonder at our childish innocence. I could decide to ignore it, be oblivious, just do my job, but it won't change their behaviour, he said. Chinese teachers who work with me will report back to the management, he said. Their decisions on schedules, extra work, holidays, benefits, promotions, it all depends on the relationships and the power plays. He added that he wasn't so impressed with how we Laowai teachers had turned on each other, and we'd even lost one of our number. Eddie was throwing books at kids, I said. That's not the point. He's one of us. So before we headed back to class, he gave us some advice. Don't be blunt. Be ambiguous. Don't talk in meetings. Nod. Don't complain to your co-teachers. Praise. And wait for me. Around Christmas 2020, in Xinjiang, northwest China, a 22-year-old woman was walking home with colleagues after a long shift at Pinduoduo, a successful e-commerce company. It was 1.30 in the morning. Suddenly she collapsed and her colleagues helped her get to hospital. But a few hours later, she was dead. It was never announced what killed this woman. But many people put it down to Jiu Jiu Liu, which means 996. It refers to the common reality of working 9am to 9pm, six days a week, especially in tech companies such as Pinduoduo, or delivery companies like Meituan, which at their core are tech companies too. Another delivery company is called Erlemme, which means, are you hungry? In 2021, a man who'd been arguing with Erlemme about his wages resorted to drenching himself in petrol and setting himself on fire. $620 was the amount in dispute, according to the state-run Global Times. Services like this make their name by being super efficient and cheap, but in doing so they run their workers into the ground and pay them badly, often operating in legally grey areas, shall we say. Often they employ migrant workers with rural hukos, peoples whose options are limited. The huko is China's internal passport system, and the modern version was developed in 1958 by the new communist government to manage the moving population. There's no direct translation for huko, but household registration system comes fairly close. It categorises people as urban or rural, granting them rights to health and education only in the place listed in the document. But the urbanites get by far the better deal. Systems managing the internal movement of people aren't exclusive to China, and they're not new. China's had forms of it since ancient times. In an authoritarian country like China, though, it's quite a handy tool. It's thought that after the Cultural Revolution, more than a quarter of a billion Chinese left their home to make better lives where there were more opportunities. People continue to urbanise to this day, chasing their Zhongguo Meng, 
the China dream. Every Chinese New Year, more than 170 million people cram into cars and public transport and head home to see the family they left for better opportunities in the cities. The internal migration is fundamental to China's recent economic success, but it's not without its challenges. Because of the hukou, when couples move to the new city, their children can't access education or healthcare, so staying behind is a better option for them. It's estimated that there are 60 million of these so-called left-behind children who are often brought up with their grandparents, who often spoil them, so the cliché goes. Being country folk remains an undesirable label in China. It's a mark of your inferior stock, and it follows you around in your hukou. In 2013, the wacky philanthropist Chen Guangbiao suggested that uneducated people should be banned from having children, while averagely educated parents should be limited to one child. The way to escape the disadvantage and the stigma of being rural is by paying social security somewhere else, and after a number of years, you can get the right to buy a house and get a new hukou. Education, connections and money is the answer. Until then, migrant workers take crap jobs, get looked down upon by their urban compatriots. Death by work is most associated with Japanese work culture, where it's called karoshu. I'm probably butchering that, I'm not familiar with Japanese. The Chinese equivalent is guolaosu. The 996 schedule is almost double the legal weekly working hours limit. Companies protest that workers are not mandated to work overtime, and business leaders like Jack Ma have spoken out in favour of such long hours, claiming that it's the path to wealth. Striving like that worked for him, after all. But the reality is that the pressures that workers endure mean it's not easy to opt out of these routines. And at the end of the day, all that overtime is simply propping up the wealth of the Jack Ma's of China while keeping the regular workers stuck in the same old rut. And even in the cities for people who are privileged by birth and have it written down on their hukou, or even for those people, working your ass off all day just isn't all it's cracked up to be. Just a few decades ago, China was dragging itself out of extreme poverty and the rewards were there for anyone who had the gumption and know-how to work hard in the right industry. A little guanxi never went to miss either, to grease the wheels a little. A better life was there for the taking, though, and the prospects for people's children never looked better. In other words, hard graft paid off, generally speaking. But for today's young adults, this is not the case. For all the great strides of modern China, the country has a deep internal challenge. China is a communist state with a capitalist economy and a consumerist population. That leaves it an ideological mess. Perhaps that doesn't make it particularly different from anywhere else. We've all at least in advanced economies, lost the old ways, however imperfect they may have been, of working out what's good and bad, right and wrong, true with a capital T. Someone once said, children should expect a better life than their parents. When that stops happening, something's gone wrong. This stopped in the West at the time of the Great Recession 2008. Younger generations now don't have access to affordable education, affordable housing, or security at work. The gap between rich and poor has grown exponentially. The new reality of the digital world seems to make everything predictable and controllable, and yet at the same time chaotic and alienating. Modern China has a different malaise to the young adults who scrape through years of high-pressure education only to emerge into a working world of drudge, competition and emptiness. At least, that's how it's often explained to me. 
Two common terms which I have heard in response to the hollowed out condition of the Chinese young adults are song culture, which reflects a kind of nihilistic social mentality of the modern age, and neijuan, the mysterious existential condition which entered common parlance after a top flight university student was filmed riding a bike while coding on his laptop. Riding a bike, that was, while coding on his laptop. Neijuan translates as involution, a term coined by an anthropologist in the 60s who was describing how agrarian societies expand in population and labor force, but their output doesn't grow. How on earth could that relate to a fellow writing code on his bike? This kid who became known as the involuted king. We're entering the world of the deeply metaphorical here. Another way of looking at it is apparently a spiral falling inwards, so I read. Well, I can't unpack it, so I decided to talk to a Chinese friend who I used to teach in Shanghai. He recently finished university and joined the world of work. It's Andrea, who told us about Shanghai during the COVID lockdown. So she's been here before to explain the sometimes strange ways that China works. Can she unpack this condition of modern Chinese life, the thing known as Neijuan? And what about lying flat and let it rot? Curious terms for a curious world. And that's next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you.